Well, good morning. My name is Casey Cease, and I have the joy of serving as the pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Christ Community Church. And this morning, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, it's one of the minor prophets, not because it's less important, but because it's shorter in length. And as we begin our time this morning in Jonah 3, I wanted to take a moment as, as your pastor to reflect briefly on the shootings that took place Friday morning in Santa Fe, Texas. Uh, Stephanie and I were away for her birthday celebration and uh, saw the news as we were grabbing breakfast. And um, there's a lot of emotions that I think we all go through when we see something as hor- horrific as that take place. Um, and I've had friends who had to work that scene and it, it's a tough, tough situation. And what I, just as I was praying and thinking through, okay, what is it that I can say? The thing that I kept sensing the Lord calling me back to and calling me back to is this, that we need to allow opportunities like this, tragic, horrible opportunities like this, to slow down and to reflect and to be exposed before holy God ourselves. That in, in moments like this, we must see that hatred and evil manifested in such a way is an outward expression of that which lies in each of us. And that we'll have a tendency to want to react and respond by going after symptoms of deep unbelief and react against those type of things before we come to the moment of humility before a powerful, holy, and perfect God. And until we come before a holy and perfect God, left undone, not only by the sins of others, but by our own sins, the power of God manifests through the Son of God, given to us by the Spirit of God, guided by the Word of God, will never take consequential and life-changing root in our lives. And so it's easy to point fingers and look down and compare ourselves, but friends, this is a moment where the Lord is beckoning us to look in the mirror and to be honest about the, the, the huge logs in our own eyes, and realize that the number one thing that our nation needs is the Lord. The number one issue leading behind horrific things is evil and unbelief and godlessness. And I'm not saying other conversations don't need to happen. I'm not saying that the Lord has not ordained those who rule over us. But I think as Christians, we need to grieve with those who grieve. We need to pause and be humbled by the fact that Jesus says, if anyone looks with anger at another person, they have committed murder in their heart. And so I just want to invite us to something more and a little bit different. Grieve with those who grieve as we mourn with those who mourn, as we sit convicted with those who are convicted, that from that place of humility, then the power of God has opportunity to take root and bring transformation. And that's the message we see today in Jonah chapter 3. In Jonah chapter 1, we meet Jonah, who is a prophet of God, told by God to go to an enemy place of the people of God to declare to them an invitation of repentance. And Jonah does outwardly what many of us do daily inwardly. He rebels against God. He denies him. He's disobedient. And Jonah runs to the farthest place possible in the known world at the time, Tarshish. During his time on a boat, there's a horrible storm that the Lord ordained and brought to cause calamity upon them. And once it was exposed that it was indeed Jonah who was doing so, he invited the sailors, the sailors to throw him over, to kill him as a sacrifice, if you will. 
And we could say, wow, what a guy, he's trying to right his wrong. Well, no, really, he was just trying to be alleviated of the ultimate burden that he had on his life to obey the Lord and carry a message to a people who rebelled against God and whom he did not like. And so God allowed him to be swallowed up by a large sea creature, a fish, a whale, who's to say? And during that time in Jonah chapter 2, we see this prayer of realignment and this prayer of repentance that in the midst of adversity that God brought upon Jonah, there was this conviction and reorientation and realignment with God. And we see in verse 10 that then this giant fish spit Jonah upon the beach. So the primary thing I want us to focus on this morning is that God uses the humble as messengers of repentance and grace by the power of his word. That God uses the humble as messengers of repentance and grace by the power of his word. And we have to understand with the gospel message, while gospel means good news, in order for there to be good news, there also is bad news. The bad news of mankind's rebellion against God, and because of our sin, we're at odds with God, and because we're at odds with God, we're deserving the punishment of God. We don't like talking about that much today. We, we believe that Jesus needs PR, public relations, that he needs spin done, that, that we need to soften the fact that we have rebelled against our maker and want to make God more palatable and more likable. However, throughout history, that is not really what God has used to bring true repentance and life change through the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean we all sign up and become jerks for Jesus, but what it does mean is that we have to hold on to the whole truth of the depths and the effects of sin. The outward manifestation of sin should be a pause for each and every one of us to see how horrific we are, uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of the reality of sin actually is in our lives. Physical, literal examples of depravity and of sin, which plagues us all. There's bad news before there's good news. And I would argue that one of the reasons in our culture today that we don't deeply love and obey God is because we don't deeply believe and understand the depths of our own sin. And until we begin to understand the depths of our own sin and our eyes are shifted from the mirror and from our own brokenness to the perfect and holy Savior, there will not be a life of joy and of gratitude and of forgiveness and of ongoing repentance. And so this morning my prayer all week long has been that the word of God would minister and compel the people of God to do the work of God. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So this is nearly identical to verses 1 through 3 in chapter 1. There's a slight difference in that message because before God told Jonah, go to Nineveh, call out against it. And Jonah, in disobedience, did the exact opposite. And so now he comes to him again in patience and in kindness towards Jonah after dealing with him for three days and says, okay, again, Go to Nineveh and call out against it, but, but notice there's a slight difference. This is important. The message that I tell you, go give them my word, is God's message to Jonah. This time, instead of rising and running away as far as he could, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire. It was one of the largest cities in Assyria. 
It was a brutal place. They often would cut their enemies' heads off, dangle it from the king's trees. They would then take the skulls and make piles by every entrance into the city to let people know to not mess with them. They would chop off people's ears, the tip of their nose, other body parts in brutal justice. They found great joy in the humiliating pain caused to others. They were enemies of God's people. And so we can understand why maybe at first Jonah didn't like the idea. But for whatever reason, God chose to be merciful to Nineveh. And it was an exceedingly great city, large city, probably over seven and a half miles in width. It would take three days for a man to go through and declare this message. Thousands of people. And so Jonah began to go through the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is all we have recorded of what Jonah was saying. And yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That, that's the, all we have as a message. And, and it's interesting, when you read other sermons and passages and commentators, they argue and talk about that, um, that there, there had to be more that Jonah was saying. Other people are saying, well, if he was literally in the stomach of a big fish, he was probably bleached white from stomach acid, and so it would appear like a ghost was talking to them. Maybe. It doesn't say that. All it says is he comes with this one message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Perhaps he shared his testimony. Perhaps he said more. We don't know. But look what happens next. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Write that down, circle it. This is the most important part. And the people of Nineveh believed, trusted, took seriously. They believed God. The question I have for you right now is, do you believe God? Do you believe the God of the Bible who created all things, who declares his truth, or if you're honest with yourself, is a God that you believe, like all the things that you like, believes all the things you believe, wants all the things that you want? Because we have a tendency to create a God in our own image rather than worshiping the God in whose image we were created in. Notice it doesn't say they believed Jonah. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they hoped in Jonah's message. They began to follow Jonah. It doesn't say that. They said, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And how do they respond? Immediately, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Sackcloth was this rough fabric you put on to um, be an outward display of your repentance to remind you of the discomfort that your sin had brought upon. It was taking seriously these things. And it's interesting that God used one sinful and broken Hebrew man by his mercy and restoration of Jonah to become a messenger of mercy to many non-Jewish people. So the first thing we see is God uses the brokenness in people to point others towards wholeness in him. God's not waiting for you to get your act together and then come to God. God is inviting you to believe him and give him your yes. The invitation of repentance isn't go get better than come to God. The invitation of Jesus is come broken and be made whole. 
It doesn't say that Jonah, after three days being in the fish, was coughed out, went to three years of seminary, had two years of internship, and then began to properly expound on the word of God. It doesn't say that. It says that he obeyed God, and then he told people, God's serious, you need to straighten up. And he didn't even say you need to straighten up. He's like, you are going to be destroyed. And they responded. They believed. I think so much weight is put on preachers today. And on another hand, I think not enough weight is put on preachers today. Pastor John and I were talking last week uh, about our early years of preaching. And I started this this student ministry. Uh, It was crazy, like in hindsight. A Friday night student ministry worship gathering weekly at like 8 o'clock or 8.30 or 8.32. I don't remember how cool it was, but it was later. Maybe it was 9. I don't even know. It was crazy. We had like over 100 kids show up at first. I shared my testimony, had a really cool band play. And then the next week, I had to come up with another message. And I wasn't used to writing sermons. And so I would just procrastinate, 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 put something down, and be like, okay, this is going to change lives. And then like 12 minutes later, the sermon was done. And some of you are like, man, I wish he was still like that. But even in the time, God would use those moments and minister to these students, and they'd need prayer, and they'd repent, and they'd change. And it was less about the messenger and more about the message and the one that gives it, God. And John would talk about how he would just be defeated after preaching because he was, he was just self-aware of how bad it was early on. And so on that regard, I think we, we like... We hold too much in regards of preaching. On the other hand, I think preachers today get away with giving good monologues and not saying much about the Lord. And I think there's a balance where we've got to preach the word of God and the good news of God and the hope of Christ. We have to talk clearly about sin so that we can elevate and, and wonder in the beauty of our Savior. God's message is ultimately God. The God of the Bible, the God of creation, the one who made you, is right to do whatever he pleases with his creation. And the Bible says, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I took a moment just to walk through the Ten Commandments, we would all sit here exposed and guilty But let me summarize it as Jesus did. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and all your soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Have you always loved God first, most, always? If not, you're guilty. Have you always loved your neighbor? And neighbor isn't just the one you like, but strangers, people who are other than you. Have you always loved them as God has loved you? If not, then you are guilty before a holy God. You have not loved the way God has called you to love. You have not loved God. You have not loved his people. Therefore, the symptom of that is sin in many different ways. Perhaps your sin is prettier than the sin of an alcoholic or of a murderer But as kind and as together as your sin might be, it still required the brutality and death of God's Son. And until we come to treasure the gift that God has given through His Son, we will never have gratitude and we'll never experience joy and peace that surpasses understanding. But we notice here in Nineveh this domino effect of repentance that it has. 
Pick up with me in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So somehow the message continued on, got to the king. He heard the message that in 40 days we will be destroyed. He took off his robe that signifies power and honor, got off his throne that that shows his sovereign rule over his nation, gets off of that thing, humbles himself, he humiliates himself, then he puts on a sign of repentance and goes and he sits in ashes, which shows desolation, destruction, death. Not only does he do this, but he leads others to do the same thing. Verse 7, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. What if we respond to crisis this way? What if we lead out as people who claim to believe in the mighty God We come and we own the fact that we have sinned against a holy God and that our sin is worthy of death, but that God, in his kindness through his son Jesus, allowed his son to be brutally beaten, tortured, betrayed and murdered, dead, crushed and buried, and by God's power, raised from the dead. And as those people, understanding our sin before a holy God, Take a posture of humility, understanding that God's retribution for sin is right and just and is free to do so whenever he pleases. And that when signs of this evil remind us of our own depravity, we come before God in prayer and in humility, beginning to clean house inside us and our homes before we point out the solutions to clean house elsewhere. This king was given belief, and from this belief, he responded by fasting. And fasting is is a discipline that we often see in the Old Testament based upon repentance, that we should not take upon any nourishment until we have the nourishment of the Lord himself. That we acknowledge that the nourishment that we need most is God's mercy and grace. But he even called it from their farm animals and land animals that we everything will stop in order to cry out to God that he might believe, that, that we, he might hear us and relent to declare that we believe. They took sin seriously because they took God seriously. See, a lot of people, they preach about bad things that are objectively bad, and, and they're all about bad things. We don't talk about bad things because they're inherently bad alone. As Christians, we look at the goodness of God, and then we identify that which does not match his goodness, and we declare those things sin that need to be removed and go back to God, who is the giver of grace. We believe God, and because we believe God, then we start believing his word, and because we believe his word, we're able to see sin in our lives and the sin in the lives of others, and we're able to treasure the gift of God through Christ. Let them call out mightily to God. 
Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. We must be careful, church, to not allow our defense of things we believe are our rights to exceed our proclamation of the righteousness of God. We must be careful not to allow our declaration of what we believe are our rights to exceed the declaration of the righteousness of God. When people are grieving, it's not the time to start arguing and debating policy. It's a time to grieve. It's a time to repent. It's a time to pray. There are a lot of difficult issues in our world that if we do not approach them through the lens of theology, the knowledge of God, through the lens of the gospel of grace, we will approach it in a very self-serving way. This king believed God and he called for a citywide repentance. In verse 9, look. Look at verse 9. Literally translate, and who knows? He believed God would destroy them. He wasn't sure God would be merciful to them. Even though there was no guarantee, he says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There was no argument from him that they didn't deserve to perish. And I've said this before, but how many of us have an inner defense attorney that steps up to start defending our own righteousness? This king was undone by the glory and power of God and the brokenness and wickedness of not only his sin, but the sin of his city. And even without guarantee of God relenting, They humbled themselves and postured themselves, showing that God is right. And whatever God chooses to do, God is right. Whatever power of God we experience, he is right. Without even fully knowing the character of God or the mercy of God, they still responded saying what we were doing was wrong. That must stop. And as we'll see as this unpacks, while they were uncertain, the Bible later teaches that we can be certain that God has relented because of his son Jesus. The second thing we see in this is that the proclamation of God's word by the power of his spirit produces true repentance. I don't know about you, but I've been to many youth events and rallies and conferences and things like that. I was at one thing one time, I was playing percussion, I used to play drums, and I was playing with a worship leader, and the speaker literally was guilting everyone to come forward. I mean, it's almost like, if you have a grandmother, come forward. Like trying to push every button he possibly could. Because for him, the sign of their movement was a sign, quote unquote, that God was moving. But it's less about the persuasiveness of a preacher and more about the power of God and his word. Jonathan Edwards, who preached a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was not known to be an amazing orator, speaker. Many instances they talk about how he was like nearly blind, had really thick glasses, and would have to hold his manuscript very close to his eyes. 
But yet as he preached about God's wrath towards sinners, men and women fell out of the, their seat crying out, what then shall, can I do to be saved? And that's why we're cautious here to not try to manifest worldly and man-made experiences, but want to give space for the Spirit of God to deal with us rightly, to evoke from us a, a growing hatred of sin and a growing love and adoration and loyalty to the Savior of sinners. And if we lose sight of why we're here to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are growing and multiplying, if we lose sight of that, we will burn out and grow weary and grow cold. But when we understand that the declaration of God's word does not return void, that the power of God comes through proclamation and through authentic community and through the faithfulness of his people, and we hope in that, that's when we see and experience and sense God's power at work amongst us. The Apostle Paul brings clarity between Two types of repentance, a type of grief that leads towards repentance. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. To break it out for you a little bit is, worldly grief is that sense you feel when you have been caught and are exposed. When your wife finds that you've been looking at pornography on your computer, and you don't really feel guilty about it, but you feel embarrassed that she caught you. That's worldly grief. When you've been caught in an outward sin and exposed very clearly, and there's no real connection or thought that, man, I've, I've offended God, but rather I feel embarrassed that people know, that's worldly grief. But godly grief is one that pierces into the heart and strips us from our pride and self-righteousness, it fires the inner defense attorney and stands before holy God and says, I have sinned against you. You have given me everything and I've betrayed you. And that type of repentance, that type of change of mind and change of direction, God meets In verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. He did not do it. You all understand, these were not covenant children of God through the, the people of Israel. These were enemies of God who wanted to do horrible things to the people of God, to the glory of themselves and their false gods. Yet God brought a messenger to declare destruction, and they believed God, and God relented. My sense is that some of you here have a pretty good hunch that God's probably real, but you want to run your own race and do your own thing and enjoy your own life and enjoy your sin and keep running but you're not guaranteed tomorrow. That God is right and complete and thorough in his justice. And we all deserve it. And there's no guarantee, as we saw on Friday morning, that any of us have tomorrow guaranteed. 
And so God today is inviting you who have not believed God, who have not hoped in God, to turn from your evil ways, your thoughts, your deeds, your unlove of God, your unlove of other people, to turn and place your hope and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because he will relent. He doesn't have to, based upon who we are. But he will relent, and he will follow and keep his promise that those who hope in his son Jesus, in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, will be forgiven, will be accepted, will be adopted in as sons and daughters. The third thing we see is this, that God's grace leads to repentance that bears fruit of lasting change. God's grace leads to repentance that bears fruit of lasting change. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11 The Apostle Paul continues, what is the fruit of this godly sorrow, this grief before a holy God, a beginning to realize there's a God who made you, a God who loves you, a God who has given you guidelines and and law to follow, yet you've rebelled against him, have not loved him, have loved other things more, other people more. He would be right to punish, but rather punishes his son. So if there's true repentance and there's evidences of this repentance, verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. When you stand before God and say, Jesus, you are right and I am wrong, I have sinned before God and I need forgiveness. Christ takes upon him your sin and places upon you his innocence. There's this fruit, this evidences of repentance. There's this earnestness, just an honest pursuit of God. There is an eagerness to, to... become aligned with what is right. You're unwilling to negotiate with sin, but rather to put it to death and go to the Lord and say, because you have forgiven me, now how shall I live? The things and sins you used to love become now you hate those sins. It doesn't entice you any longer. Temptation then becomes revulsion as you grow to value what God values. And when temptation happens, it no longer has the final authority and hold on your life, but then temptation becomes an invitation to worship. What fear, what deep respect, and it says what longing, this longing for the presence and nearness of God. What zeal becomes passion for God and his kingdom? And what punishment, what resolve is there to cut yourselves off from that which robs you of joy that you were intended to have in Christ? And what aligns you and comes into your life to bring wholeness in life and transformation? At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Church, one of the things that we value here at Christ Community Church that we intend on seeing become true is that we are a praying church We are a house of prayer. We are a place of prayer. That we turn to God in prayer because we value God. That we go to God in prayer because we want to see our neighbors and our friends and our family members reach with the gospel of Jesus. That we are a people of prayer because we believe God is God and that we are not and that we need God. 
We are people that become grateful to God through expression of that gratitude because of the promises of God that do lead us to forgiveness. We have the opportunity because of the grace of God to be known as the people of God by humbly entering into the presence of God to ask for his help. We can go into the presence of God exposed in our sin and cry out for mercy and he relents and he grants it. We can be a people of God that goes and boldly proclaims the whole gospel, the bad news and the good news of the gospel to the friends and family members around us. Not hoping in our gifts of persuasion, but believing in the power of God's word to bring transformation. Throughout the scriptures in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 13, we see Jesus crying out, repent, otherwise you will perish. He begins his ministry by crying out to God's people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This idea of repentance isn't one of Old Testament fire and brimstone. It's one of great caution and invitation to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. In hoping in Jesus, we then hope in the one who is able to immeasurably forgive us and love us and complete us. And the beautiful thing is he doesn't just do those things to put us on layaway for heaven, but he restores us now as messengers of his grace to our homes and our neighborhoods and our nation. you believe God and if you believe God where is God calling you from what sin in your heart is he exposing and inviting you from that to his son if you're here and you've never placed your hope and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ I need you to hear me I'm not standing here judging you I have been where you are and the Bible says because of our sin, we are already under judgment. But that God through his son, Jesus Christ, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. If you're here this morning, you've never placed your hope in Jesus. I'm not talking about your parents' hope. I'm not talking about your religion. I'm saying, have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? Then let today be the day that you, you trust him. That you turn from sin and you turn, from the sa- turn to the Savior. Because God uses the humble as messengers of repentance and grace by the power of his word. Let these opportunities and moments of grief be opportunities of humility and of repentance that we might be image bearers that carry the message of repentance and of reconciliation to fellow image bearers. Let's pray. Father, we do come and we do pray for the families who are grieving the losses that they sustained this last Friday in Santa Fe, Texas. And Father, we do acknowledge those opportunities as well for us to be reminded of the profound wickedness that we are prone to as humans. And we also see that as followers of Jesus as an opportunity to place our hope and renew that hope in you. 
Father, before we go after policy or protest, let us come in repentance and humility to then determine, Lord, how you would call us to respond and what needs to change, what needs to happen. We pray for the law enforcement and the rulers of our land. We pray for those on both sides of the arguments, Lord, that, that through this that we might see revival take place in our nation. Our greatest need is a solution that you've provided to our greatest problem, which is our sin. And so, Father, I ask that you would move in the hearts of men and women and children here this morning, that your kindness would lead us to repentance, and that that repentance would bear fruit. Lord, I ask you would help us to be a place of prayer. I pray that you would break our heart for those who are lost around us, not in arrogance, but in humility that we might go and carry the message of grace. Father, we need you. More than anything else, we need you. And we hope in you. Move in us, Lord, so that you might move through us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.